Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 290th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Andrew Comero. Andrew is the founder of 10Path Financial Group and Planning Across the Spectrum, a hybrid advisory firm based in Farmington, Connecticut that oversees 100 million assets under management for 100 client households. What's unique about Andrew, though, is how he, as a financial advisor with autism, has built an advisory firm with a specialized niche of autistic and other neurodivergent clients, helping them navigate their unique and complex financial planning challenges. In this episode, we talk in depth about how being diagnosed with autism as an adult helped Andrew to understand himself better and realize he had an opportunity to niche focus his firm to serve clients who are also neurodivergent. How the combination of creating a separate website for planning across the spectrum and leveraging a Facebook group for the special needs community has helped Andrew develop a steady path for growth in his specialization. And how Andrew decided to create an impact investing index that he labeled as a neurodiversity index with 79 companies that embrace neurodiversity and inclusion. Because on the periodic table, gold is represented by the letters AU and its atomic number is 79. We also talk about how, despite never graduating high school, but later gaining a GED, Andrew credits his autism and the hyper-focus that comes along with it to helping him ultimately earn more than 16 professional financial planning designations. How working in an insurance company early in his career and getting frustrated with adhering to the large firm corporate rules helped Andrew realize he liked giving financial advice to clients, but was going to need a more independent structure to be able to serve the clients that he serves the way he wanted to serve them. And how an unexpected separation from that insurance company ended up being a blessing in disguise as it forced Andrew to find a new growth path for bringing in clients that led him to focusing on his ideal client type and fueled the launch of his firm. And be certain to listen to the end, where Andrew shares how he was surprised by how much he actually enjoyed building his own firm and having the flexibility to decide for himself all the procedures and roles to put in place. Why Andrew believes we are often too hard on ourselves and how it is important to be kind to ourselves about the challenges we face. And why Andrew feels the best business decision he ever made was hiring his first team member to assist him even before he really had the revenue to fully afford it, because it was the only way he'd be able to grow and scale to the next level. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Andrew Comero. Welcome, Andrew Comero, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. You know, one of, one of the themes that we often cover here on the on the podcast is talking about advisors that have interesting specializations, interesting niches, and and I know you have built out uh, a very deep expertise and specialization around working with neurodivergent individuals, which is kind of becoming this broader label for those that are are have ADD or ADHD, uh, autism spectrum disorder, and and a few other things under the kind of that collective umbrella. And so you you've been building this practice and and specialization in the area, which I know for for many of us, you know, often we 
we form specializations in areas where we have some kind of personal connection. You know, and I know a lot of advisors who are who have a niche with teachers because their family were teachers, or they have a niche with uh, police officers because their family were police officers. Or you know, we recently had someone on whose uh, specialization is people from the nuclear power industry because he spent a career in the nuclear power industry before career changing into financial advisors. And I find for a lot of advisors that have specializations around you know children and families with special needs often because they had a child with who is a special needs child and have lived some of that journey and and I'm I'm excited and interested for the conversation today because I know your your path is a little bit different in that you work with neurodivergent clients as a neurodivergent advisor as an advisor who got diagnosed as an adult with autism and you know I will admit I I I don't know very many advisors with autism or at least who have you know been public about it saying and acknowledging that that they have autism i think right or wrong the both the industry and the public has certain stereotypical views around autism which i'll say broadly are not consistent with what we usually think of as financial advisors so i, I just i'm 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 excited for the taste conversation around what that journey looks like of being a financial advisor with autism and just how how does that work and how does autism show up in your life as a financial advisor so i mean how does it work i I'd like to say broadly, right? People ask me questions about what I love to talk about the most. So, and also really common with autism or, you know, dyslexia or ADHD, you know, there's terms special interest, hyper focus, hyper interest. And, you know, for me, my, you know, my work never feels like work. And it's truly what I'd rather be doing and enjoy. So I get to, you know, really dive in and, and learn. It's it's what I'd rather be doing. You know, sometimes there's people with, you know, very, very special, you know, focuses that maybe tra- can't be translated into, you know, commercial value, right? I think I got a little lucky in some ways in that, <laughs> you know, my, my, mine has a commercial value. Yeah, at least what I'm interested in. So it's an interesting way to frame it, right? Like w- one of the things that that typifies those with autism is is often having deep interest in something, passion interest in something, sometimes uh, you know framed as obsessive interest in something. As you know, like. You know, sometimes you can end out with a really deep interest in something that is neat and passionate to you, but not necessarily as commercially viable. You 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 seem to have taken on a super deep interest in the financial services industry and advice about money, which happens to be extremely commercial as something you can you can do with that knowledge base and that interest. And so, it, like, is that was that just you know quirk of fate that it turned out that financial services or money issues happen to be a thing that you get really excited and interested in? Well, I am Jewish, but no, it it, it always have for my bar mitzvah. I remember I I wanted to buy sort of 20 20 years ago, almost like wanted to buy Palm Pilot, right? Or Palm, right? The stock. For the stock. So you didn't, you didn't want a Palm Pilot. You wanted Palm stock. Correct. Yes, exactly. And actually, I think it was sold a few years later. I learned what capital gains tax was. That was a separate. But no, it was always an interest. Like, I guess, you know, going back, like, I I always, like, wanted to, you know, run the lemonade stand or, you know, the the store, right? Or, like, at the tag sale. Like, I wanted to, you know, handle the money. Actually, my one of my earliest memories or, like, of, of, like, this is... My mother trying to teach me of supply and demand, and I think I'm five or six. And at the bottom of the hill in our suburban town, there was just an empty lot of land that seemed like it had been for sale my whole life, right? 
And my mom was a real estate agent. And I asked her, well, you know, can, can I buy it? I want to play there, basically. Right. <laughs> like, well, it's only worth what somebody will pay for it. I said, and logically to me, especially at five, I saw no reason they shouldn't accept $50. It's been for sale for forever. 50 is better than zero. <laughs> Nobody else is offering anything. Simplistically and not simplistically, that kind of worked. I also think too that when it comes to autism or, or not, or, or really any types of thinkers, it seems to be pretty generally, there's three different ways people think, right? And I think that's almost as much, if not more important than what you like. Like it's like what you like and why. So like people who are really good at like memorization, you know, like word fact would be the the term I'd use. Or and then there's people who very much like think in pictures, like TV show Good Doctor or just other things, which is not me actually. And then there's people who I, I'd say are more, you know, problem solvers, right? Or pattern seers, mm -hmm. right? And I think most of the population falls in one of those three categories. And as a financial planner, I, I like solving problems. So in my, like, I, what could be better than like solving problems about what I love to talk about the most? That's kind of what our job is. And so help us, because I, I Again, I'm cognizant there's a lot of stereotypes out there broadly around neurodivergence in general and, and autism in, in particular, you know, de depending on your like your your age bracket of movies. For a lot of people, probably the first introduction to autism was the movie Rain Man, which had a you know a, a particular version expression of autism. So like perhaps just you can help educate us and bring us up to speed a little bit of just like what what really is autism? What is it what does it mean to have autism? Just help us understand what that diagnosis is. I don't know if I can even, you know, say one thing that would, you know, be that applicable to, you know, everyone. I think like the hyper focus is definitely there. Social, right? You know, social and communication, which when I'm talking about something that I love to talk about, my communication is very, very different. So if it's, if I'm not talking about what we're talking about today, right, or one of my other two, it's called special interests. It, it's a, I'm very different when I'm talking about that. It's like, it's like I'm on when I'm talking about something I'm interested in. Uh, that's very common. You know, as far as stereotypes, I, I really think it's the biggest one I, I see is that there aren't, there are a lot of people who aren't that good at math, a lot of very creative, lots of really visual, over half our staff is autistic. We have dyslexic ADHD employees. We actually have only have one employee who isn't, and we like to make fun of her for that. But she's fantastic. And so I, I'd really say that I really don't know if there's a good answer to that question. You know, it's, it's, don't have any, you know, assumptions, right? There's also a lot of just, you know, either co-occurring or if somebody has an intellectual disability and if they can, you know, what it's called non-speaking, like how can they communicate can sometimes really be, you know, considered a level of intelligence, right? Or like, uh, Michael, I think we would both be screwed if they, you know, did intelligence based upon handwriting legibility. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, mine's completely, <laughs> completely indecipherable. Yeah. So for you, like, as you'd said, c communication is very different when, you know, when, when it's, when it's in your, your topical interests, right, which is you know, much of our discussion, say, around the financial services industry and what we do here. And then it's different when it's when it's some other domain. So like what is what is communication like for you when it's when it's not in the financial services domain of of comfort? Like how does that change it for you? I'd say 
Well, to not answer the question, I mean, there is a lot of overlap. I, I'm very direct. I can definitely still, you know, misread, you know, social cues. I remember one time, six, seven years ago, there, there was a prospect I had, and I remember, and I actually ran into them at the movie theater with my wife. Okay, this is maybe seven, eight years ago, and I didn't have a diagnosis at the time either. And she recognized me. She said hi, and she said she'd call me. I thought she was actually going to call me, by the way, right? <laughs> My wife was like, eh, she's not calling you. Like, didn't, didn't you know, she, she's, no, 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 no. She, she wanted to go watch the movie. But, you know, at the same time, like, you know, trying to find where direct, clear communication is good for everyone. It's a term, universal design. So try to focus on what's good for some, good for everyone, regardless of whether, you know, they're right. autistic, neurodiverse or not, right? You know, like who on the planet likes fluorescent lights as an example, Liter literally nobody, right? <laughs> so that, that would be un-universal un design, un universally bad design. Exactly, yeah. But a, a lot more quiet, a lot more introverted, people who might only know me in a professional sense, you know, might not, you know, understand how like, oh no, but I, I, I can't like call the doctor, or, like to, you know, check on a prescription or like to order food. Like I, you know, the social anxiety to do that or make conversation about literally anything else. Hmm. Like it is, you know, really hard, if not, you know, close to impossible, you know, most social stuff, right? If it's not, if I can't find, you know, some, you know, one of like the, the couple areas that I'm interested in, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, it, I'll just, you know, be in the corner the whole time. So what was it that, I guess, like led to or triggered an, an autism diagnosis for you? Because I, I, as I understand it, like you, you were not, you were not diagnosed as a child. This was only sort of a, 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 a diagnosis discovery realization that came much later in life. Correct. Correct. And and I was the stereotype as a child. I, I, I probably should have been, but I wasn't. I was talk I was in therapy and I was talking to my therapist and I think it was the show I the show um Atypical on Netflix several years ago. I think the first season and I worked my first job was at Comp USA, if anyone remembers that that store. I like computers a lot too. So been closed for a while. He had a job there. He liked penguins when I was a child. Like I liked penguins and I can't remember there was something else or some of the stuff he said. And I was joking. My therapist was like, you probably shouldn't be joking. You know, was, was pretty much how it started. And so just this, this realization of, oh, I'm, I'm showing up the way the person in a typical shows up with autism. Wait, that might actually literally be me. Yeah, or, or like a lot of similarities too, right? Like, you know, I, I'm very direct, you know, you know, say stupid things or <laughs> blunt. But at the same time, talk about a stereotype. I'm also extremely sarcastic. I grew up in a sarcas sarcastic household. Like, we're just sarcastic is my fluent language too. So blunt and sarcastic that I'm sure that goes, goes well in some, some situations. <laughs> some, yeah, some it doesn't. So what was the path into the, the financial services industry? Like how, how did you land in a world of, of being a financial advisor? So I, I had my own business fixing computers and I really liked that. And I was paying my, my way through community college, fixing computers. Thought I wanted to be a, like a Unix system administrator. And I really liked, again, fixing them, solving, solving the problem. But I was tired of, you know, being, you know, called 8 o'clock on a Saturday night. Like, you know, it's an emergency, needs to be fixed. And uh -huh. 
talk about value, right? You know, there used to be people who repair TVs and VCRs. They don't exist. When it comes mm-hmm. to the to the solving computer problems that I liked, you know, kind of saw, hey, if I can recommend a cheaper one to somebody else, you know, buy a new one instead of fixing it. Yep. So my uncle worked for Prudential. They'll hire anyone who will fog a mirror. And he was joking when he said, would you like a job? And I said, sure. And I was interested, again, in, in personal finance, you know, in investing. Um, and I just really think a lot of it's luck that I really, you know, took to wanting to learn everything I, I could. So I guess in, in along those lines, like as you said, this this gets a lot easier for you when it's in your kind of the 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 topics and domains of of interest for you, and you know you had the you know l- l- learning about supply and demand when the local landowner wouldn't sell you the plot of playground land for fifty dollars and like buying palm stock with bar mitzvah money, but was I mean just was personal finance and investing always a uh, a theme from you early on, or was that really just kind of a like random discovery later? And and then it turned out it stuck because that was the thing that you really got interested and passionate about. I think the personal finance was, again, you know, or especially helping others was it, you know, definitely later. I'll say like the economics or the entrepreneurial part of what I do, like, you know, in high school, I would burn CDs and sell them for a dollar. And okay. I get the latest hip hop album. I didn't need to listen to it from somebody who had it. And then I'd sell them for a dollar so I could buy soda. So People seem like who knew me then don't seem surprised, you know, at now. But you know, the the personal finance really came later. Um, I don't think we've mentioned, I, I didn't graduate high school. I started kindergarten late because I speech delay and I have a GED, but I also have quite a few designations and people would never know or guess. I get the jokes for, you know, more more letters after my name than in my name and all that for, for you know, eight odd degrees and and, and designations. But like for... For people who are listening for context, like Andrew literally has more than twice as many designations after his name than I do. I, mean, I think you have literally done any everything the American College has ever offered, plus a number of others. Correct. Yes. No, that that is absolutely correct. Yep. And, you know, I didn't I don't think I knew how much a lot of it would interest me. I uh, I started I, I started getting them because at Prudential I there was somebody studying and I'm just like well why are you doing this it's like well they they pay for it and when you get your first one you pass they they give you a thousand dollars in a trip to Vegas <laughs> so, like, so you know what's better than a thousand dollars in a trip to Vegas sixteen thousand dollars <laughs> sixteen trips to Vegas. <laughs> Yeah. No, you know, I only got it once. I did only yeah, they didn't keep Oh, they didn't do yeah, they didn't do it again every time you got another one? No, it was just oh. the first designation. Oh man, that's kind of a letdown, I have to admit, that they wouldn't keep sending you back. And then they at the time I didn't have a degree either. I had college credits but no degree. So after you got like the CLU or the CHFC, then they'd pay for a degree too of higher education. So I, I had it all mapped out. Here here was the path to the to the designations, the degree. Very cool. And so that was all kind of a, like employee benefits, advisor benefits of Prudential that that they had a lot of budget for reinvesting in your education. And so you were able to leverage that really heavily as as you were building. Yes. In addition to finding a school that would take my 
you know, computer credits. And it actually, mm. I think I, it sounds obvious now, but my degree, my specializations in financial planning and technology that, that didn't exist. I needed to convince the school <laughs> why those two things were important, which is, right. you know, is not that hard, right? They're, they're so, you know, intertwined. And I, and I took a lot of tests in the CLEP. So I was able to finish the bachelor's very quickly, which I think is, you know, without that, can't have the CFP. Right. Right. And I looked at it from, I know I, I don't want to learn about that. If I can take a test for analyzing and interpreting literature, and if I passed, anybody can get the six credits for passing. But what was the quickest way? Almost like what was a negative? If, you know, you're my father and you're saying he's taking a shortcut, you know, I, I'll definitely say I took a shortcut to my bachelor's degree with the general ed I had no interest in. So, like, how do you get this swing from challenges in high school, wasn't able to graduate, had to go back later for a GED, and then, oh, by the way, like, plowing through 16-odd professional designations, which is just a phenomenally large amount of information to learn learn and absorb and, and test on? Like, how, how do you go from high school as a challenge to crushing on advanced education and professional designations that seems to be going so well for you? Again, I think that would really sum it up to, you know, autism, neurodiversity, special interest, right? You know, okay. it's something where if you could give me something fun to do and, you know, you know, read my, what was it, HS 324, life insurance law was a really, I don't, you know, for some reason, that one interested me a lot. Oh, right? I liked that one too. Back, yeah. when, back when the American College did, still did the old style, like blue bound Hubner books. Yeah. Yes. And, and the way I learned, be a big one was being able to learn in the way that I like to learn. I would listen to the books in the car, or like nobody listened to the American College books or like the audio, you know, recording. But I, I can't sit all day, you know, in a classroom, in a lecture. I remember one of my first, you know, months at Prudential, there was one of those, I'm, I'm just going to call it a stupid all day, you know, rah-rah meetings. There was somebody who wasn't there. And I'm just like, well, why don't they have to be there? Oh, they're out selling. They're making money. And I'm like, okay, my goal is to make money so I don't have to be at this one next year. And I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> so talk about that, that side of the business, that going out and marketing and prospecting and getting clients, which for most people is sort of the like the ultimate in you know social activities, right? We're supposed to go out and network and and connect with others to find our way to to prospects we can be introduced to and, and do business with. So so I talk to us about the social dynamics of prospecting and going out to get clients and what that's like for you. What it's like now is very different than, you know, when I started my career, which okay. makes sense. That's common for, you know, everyone or theory. Yeah, or yeah. It's, it's you know, especially awkward and painful for basically everyone at the beginning. But yeah. I think what was really good for me about a place like Prudential is they had, and maybe Mike, you, you had them too, was, you know, orphans as we called them, you know, yes. the unaligned clients. And nobody wanted those. And, and like, talk about people to practice on. I mean, there's literally thousands of people where you have a reason to speak to them. And then you could move on. And I, and I assume some of this still exists, right? Like see 10 people a week. I saw 10 people a week for years. I took that way too seriously. <laughs> I had to see 10 people a week. I would, you know, be there 16 hours until I had my 10 people next week, right? And I think, I mean, 
that's the largest part to the, you know, success, right? And that's a numbers game. You know, I yeah. another common thing can be like a script. Like I, I remember actually the first one I call, the individual had passed away. So my first ever or online call is he's dead. Well, then I have great news for you because he was insured. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you have a claim. <laughs> yeah. Because I'm calling from the life insurance company. But like, you know, even just of, and it took a while, but there were just thousands of them, like just so many. And, you know, I saw it as the goal was to get a meeting with them. And that's all I wanted. And like kind of once I developed a script, it was, that's a big thing with, again, autism is routine. And I have, a, I never thought I had a lot of routines in a strict schedule, but I do. I think I'd have to shower waking up in the morning if our house was burning down, right? Like first thing I do. There's worse routines than to have than showering first thing in the morning. Oh, that's true. That's true. So, but you know, I, I'd call and I'd have a script and I'd, I, I also think I just looked at some things a little bit differently too, you know, with like, oh, well, you know, here's the opportunity, you know, here, here's the reason, you know, to call them and just yep. looked at it from, uh, did I like the, the calling them? Yeah. Like, no, but almost like a video game, almost like checking it off my list, right? Gotta have 10. Gotta yeah, call it's it's great. Like there's structure, a routine, a script and a scoring system. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't put it that way before, but de definitely. Yeah. Well, I, I, it is interesting to me though. So the, so the dynamic for you was, I mean, in essence, there's a level of, I was going to say cold calling orphan policies aren't quite cold calls. They're, they're sort of se semi cold, semi warm calls. And I guess for, for those who are listening, who aren't as familiar on the insurance side of the industry. So you, know, when, when an insurance agent sells a policy, they become the, the agent of record on the policy. So you have if you need help with it in the future, you you call the agent who sold it to you. At some point, that agent may retire, and at the point that it, that they retire, sometimes policies get reassigned to another agent, and sometimes they either just stay with the branch or they get reverted back to the home office, and they're known as orphaned policies because you know the the parent, the the original agent, is no longer there in the picture. And so, for some insurance companies over the years, if they've got a big pile of orphaned policies, you know, if the person has a servicing need, they just call the home office and, and it gets served, but no one's calling out to them at that point because the agent is gone, but they do have a relationship with the insurance company. So if you call and say, I'm, I'm Andrew, I'm calling from Prudential about your insurance policy, like they'll usually take the call because they literally do have a policy with the insurance company. And then once they take the call, you can say, you know, hey, you know, can we come out and review the policy? Or is there anything else going on in your financial life that we might be able to help you with? And so it it, it becomes a way where you can get, get some conversations with people who can be prospects and it's warmer than a cold call because they'll usually take the call since they've got a policy with the company, but they may not have been called on for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, which means it's not the warmest of calls, but it also means there's a decent chance of other things you can do with them because their lives may have changed a lot since they got that original policy that's now orphaned. And then there's some of the people, for whatever reason, came up in the system, so they got a call a week, right? Like, <laughs> for like whatever reason. But I would start it with, I'm calling, and I'm calling to update my records, which is a fact finder. Ooh. And I would say, I'm calling, I just want to update my records. Well, it's been a while since, you know, we've spoken to anybody from Prudential. 
well, that's exactly why I'm calling. And, you know, doing 10 plus a week, you know, got really good at asking some of those fact-finding questions or noticing one or two things, you know, with their policies or sometimes what excited me the most and a reason to call one is, you know, where there was actually something I could see that they should do with their policy, right? right. Because then that's a great conversation to have versus, you know, because a lot of them were 30 plus year old policies. Prudential had, you know, tens of thousands of agents down to 2,500, right? I think one in 10 people in the United States has a Prudential life insurance policy. <laughs> even if so, it, no, it's insane how many people have these old, old policies, you rarely want to ever replace a long-standing permanent insurance policy once it's once it's built up. I mean, there there can yes. be situations, but they they often are performing quite well relative to the current environment. If only because you're getting a, a dividend scale or or an interest crediting rate off of the insurance company's general account, which is a lot better than going interest rates today. Yeah. So you were you were cutting your teeth in calls to orphan policies and I guess like trying to fact find your way to other opportunities and other ways that you could do business with them once you've got them on the on the call. You can I help you with the retirement account rollover. Do you need more insurance and so on and so forth? Yeah. No, and it really started with the the fact finder, right? And again I'm I'm updating my records and then they give me information and I'd see if there was any other something else I could talk to them about. And, you know, I talked to a lot of different people across different industry. You know, I talked to everyone. <laughs> and so, I mean, just was that turning into business for you? I mean, were you getting cases written or dollars moved and and business flowing? I mean, I, I started when I was 21. I was, you know, the top producer in my agency for the, you know, the years in those years. So the answer was yes, you know, almost like a, a bad addiction too, because it, it almost, when I left six years ago, it was a blessing and a, a curse, right? Because it was easy, but not good at the same time. Like it it was, eventually it got to the point where I think if I hadn't been forced to not have those, you know, it'd be very different because, you know, I knew if I met with 10 of them, that one of them would need my help with something, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not very enjoyable in the long run, meeting with nine people who aren't interested <laughs> in working with you. So you, so you were good at the at playing the numbers game because it was a routine that you could do very consistently, and it would consistently produce results. But but it's a really grindy routine when you get rejected by ninety percent of the people that you talk to. Definitely, yeah. So, but I I noticed you know a common theme from a lot of the people I that I liked working with, which was you know I really liked the people that most financial plan planners seem to hate. We have a lot of aerospace engineering around here, United Technologies, mm. Brent Whitney, uh, etc. So I really liked the engineers. I really liked the analytical people, and I remember. You know, and, and it's funny, like looking back. So before I niched, I'm like, ah, you know, I want to work with people who, mm. who are like me. And well, at first it was, okay, I, maybe I want to specialize in engineers, right? You know, I really like the analytical people. Now, it's not saying they're all neurodiverse, but, you know, it makes sense come to think about it. Yeah. Right? Like, yep. like wh why those were the people that I, I was really drawn to working with. So what led to the change? Because as you noted, like you, you ultimately left Prudential a number of years ago. So what what led you to depart the company? You know, I, I'll say a, a fair amount of it was probably not, you know, being diagnosed. I, I very much, insurance companies have a lot of 
stupid rules, bluntly, right? Compliance. When I left even six years ago, we were using Lotus Notes for email still. And just when I knew there was a better way, it was very hard on me to not, you know, to not want to do something that made sense to me. And in a big corporate environment, you know, they're not going to always tell you the reasons why you can't do something. They may not even know, right? Right. And and that was and still is a, a very big struggle for me. So, you know, I was, you know, a headache to, you know, management in the way that I think some of the other people were like, who is this this kid? You know, what 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 is he doing that he's, you know, you talk about like the iceberg effect, right? Which is yeah. like the reason I have a podcast. Like, you know, they just see like some weird social awkward like young kid, you know, making But you had good numbers, there. so Yeah, but I also, I didn't want to just do what the company put in front of me. Right. You could sell potentially, you could sell other companies. And there was always that, you know, list of approved other things that you could sell. And I was always pushing, but why, I know this is out there. I know that it's best for my client. Like, why can't I do it? They just want you to be like everyone else. And if there's something I'm not, it's like everyone else. So, so what, what came next? Like when you decided, you know, Prudential is not my long-term future, like what did you, what did you look to do next? I I was looking for something, but the decision was made for me more suddenly than than I would have liked, but you know, I'm glad it happened. So I, I had to leave, you know, pretty quickly and I already had my own office, my own everything set up. You know, at that point I had built up enough clients and again, they they contacted me, right? Mm-hmm. They had my number. Prudential did me a nice favor of sending everyone I was assigned to a letter stating that I, I was leaving. So, of course, then they pick up the phone and they call you and then yep. not soliciting. So I, I thank them for that. So then I, I just had, you know, my with a hybrid RIA. Uh, that, you know, also does a lot of LPL, join them. And a lot of it was for the flexibility to, you know, being able to custody where it made sense, being able to work with what made sense and kind of do things, you know, my own way. I didn't really have a plan other than, you know, I, I didn't have a plan at that point. It wasn't for, you know, a little while later. So Prudential unexpectedly said it's time it's time to end and wind down. And so you had to f- find a new home in short order. Yes. Correct. And so, how, like, how did you pick who to join or who to work with? Did it just come down to like wh- whoever I can find that I can get up to speed quickly, <laughs> or or was there more of a, a a process or a vetting system of where am I going to go next? So, I mean, there, there were there were really just two. It was I didn't want to be restricted with what I could and couldn't do. Right? You know, I wanted to be able again to focus on true financial planning, but I wanted the flexibility. I, I didn't want a situation where if something made the most sense for a client, where, where the answer was no for no reason, right? Mm-hmm. Other than the answer's been no. I don't know if you ever talked about like the five monkey example, and I don't think I could do it justice if I was to repeat it now. No, I don't know right? the five monkey example. Or, where there's where there's five monkeys, and if they go to eat you know, a banana, they get electrocuted, right? Or like electrical shock. And but like they replace one monkey with another monkey, and and any and then the other the the one new monkey will go to touch the banana, and all the other four warn right to you know not touch the banana, and eventually all the monkeys are replaced to the point where none of the monkeys have ever been electrocuted oh. by the banana, right, or touching the banana, but they all they all know 
that you can't touch the banana. I feel like that's what like working that that's what I didn't want. I felt like that was working for a big company. <laughs> Nobody knew the reason you couldn't do this anymore. It's just the way that it was. Okay. Right. And, and that that was what I so that, that I, yeah. whole phenomenon where some at some point a long time ago, someone did a bad thing and everyone was told you're not allowed to do the thing. And everybody who was around when that happened has since left. And so nobody knows why you can't do the thing. They just all know you're not allowed to do the thing. Yeah. So, you know, working for a company that I have full discretion on all my accounts, I could work with multiple custodians. And a lot of it was I, I did only have a couple options because of the relatively short order that I had. But, you know, again, you know, great decision nonetheless. It, you know, I was semi ready for it. And so and so what was the structure when you when you transitioned? I mean, were you did you, you know, be become a like become a rep and open a branch yourself? Did you become an employee in some other firm? Were you like, you know, affiliated under someone else's umbrella? Like what was what was the actual structure of how you how you tied in the LPL? So at Prudential, I already had my own private office in my own location, my own phone number, and I was actually even using my own DBA already at Prudential. So I, you know, I, I made that switch to where, you know, I kind of then just kept the same DBA and I Oh, so wait. Branch. So yeah. you you already had an office, a phone number, and a DBA. Yeah, exactly. And Prudential terminated you and sent all your clients a letter to let you know that you weren't there anymore so that they could call the same firm with the same name at the same number and find you yes. <laughs> exactly where you were with a new company. And nobody else was at that location <laughs> but me, yes. So um, I think they might have left a different number <laughs> on the letter, but I don't think people called that one. So, well, because if they already had the number they'd been calling you at already exactly. you know, in their, I was going to say Rolodex, we don't use Rolodex anymore, but like in our, in your phone or in your contact list, like you just call the number you always have, or you pull up any email from Andrew from the past several years and just grab the phone number off the bottom, which is still the same. Correct. Yep. And, and it was, well, why, well. I'll have more options and lower fees, but in the meantime, every all your investments are staying the same. Oh, okay. I, that that's a pretty you know as far as conversations go, right? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a pretty easy one. So, did the did the nature of the focus of of like just the offering and what you were doing for clients change when you went from Prudential and LPL? Like, I, you know, I'm cognizant you had a sounds like a, a relatively flexible product shelf at Prudential, but you know you are working for an insurance company. So there does tend to be a bit of a bent towards accountability for insurance production in particular. So did did that dynamic of just like what you were using and implementing change once you once you transition to LPL? Yes. Yeah, so one of the things too is, and this is very common, is the insurance company, if you sell annuities or insurance, they won't appoint you to sell their insurance for, you know, a year or two. Um, whatever reason they give is not true. It's to prevent people from leaving if you can't service your clients right. right, by being their agent for a little while. But no, I mean, a lot of it was the investment flexibility too, you know, like in the insurance and the stuff was there, but being able to, you know, individual stocks, you know, you know, ETFs, different types of investment options. It was still traditionally, you know, just a mutual fund program, you know, being able to 
it was so open. It was exciting. I got to learn all of these things and mm. like solutions that I could help implement with my clients that, you know, you know, I could never have done before. Right. Sure. Which like was, you know, exciting. I mean, I, I'd say it's probably over you know, whelming, you know, at first it's like, oh my God, there's so much I can do. And then you're yep. like, well, okay, maybe I should, you know what I'm saying? It's kind of like yeah. somebody tried to implement everything they heard on every one of your podcasts, Michael, right? Yeah. Like, don't, don't, don't really recommend that. <laughs> like find, find your one thing every now and then you're like, oh, I'm going to try that and like, try that for a while, see how it goes. And then a couple months you can try another thing. Like, don't 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 spend too much change up at once. It doesn't tend to go well. But I I will say, and I have noticed this is really common with neurodivergent planners and just individuals as well as getting lost in the details. Right? You talked about mm -hmm. what's a commonality. Usually that's one of them, and not seeing the big picture. So some other a lot of financial planners I've spoke to can get too involved in the product, right? Or too involved in the you know in the weeds. I don't know if Einstein actually said it, but I, I'm pretty sure he actually said it, which is if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. Mm -hmm. So I always try to, you know, I, I, I keep that in the back of my mind every day because, I mean, I, I could talk really, you know, nerdy. But if you want to stop talking to somebody on an airplane, Michael, tell them you sell life insurance <laughs> and they will not talk to you the rest of the flight at all, like ever. Ironically, for as much as I fly on on airplanes and occasionally get people I'm sitting next to that I would rather not talk to, I have not actually tried that, and I don't know why not. <laughs> I, I may have to try that next time. Even my wife's tried it, right, on a flight without me, and she's like, it works. So, what do you do? I, I sell life insurance. <laughs> they will not talk to you. You're 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 done. Awesome. So so if if so much of your growth at Prudential though was was driven by all the opportunities that come from orphan policies. So what happens when you're out of Prudential and at LPL and and orphan policies aren't a thing anymore? I I, I melt down and I, I figure my life's coming to an over over. What am I gonna do now? But you know, I guess when I was lucky in that I had a a book of enough clients, right, that had been with, you know, that contacted me that I liked working with, where it did provide me the opportunity to, I think, not need to do that anymore, to, okay. you know, focus. And I wasn't sure what I, I wanted to do. I had a, a partner under, you know, a di you know, another young CFP since, since don't, you know, he did college planning. I thought, like I said, I wanted to work with engineers, I kept trying to think the 10 appointments a week, just I'm a really anxious person. I never thought I was because if you've never not been anxious, how do you know that you're anxious? Is a kind of interesting way to look at it. So mm -hmm. I think the, what is it, Mark Cuban said, you know, work like somebody's working, you know, twice as hard to steal everything away from you is pretty mm. much how I, I live my, you know, like, I don't know if that's a positive, but, you know. Keeps you focused. Keeps it focused. does. But, you know, what I knew I liked is I knew I really liked the complex cases, the really complex issues. Mm. What I also knew I didn't like was working with really, really ultra high net worth because 
that's traditionally what we think of as complex. But at the same time, they also need our help the least. And I found them the mm. least. Inter- and you, I think you've published some things recently, yeah. right, on, you know, the satisfaction advisors get working up that scale, right? I think um, I saw some. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, It was one of the things that we found in our well-being research that, like, just advisor happiness and well-being, like how good we feel about ourselves and the work that we do, tends to fall off quite materially once you start working with ultra high net worth clients. I mean, I already knew that. Like when I saw that, I'm like, yep, yep, you know. But I like the complex. Like again, I, I like solving problems, right? I like coming up to, you know, nobody else had looked at it that way before, right? Which is a yep. again, common advantage of, you know, diversity. So it was, again, se- several years later, it, it actually came pretty quickly after I was diagnosed. I, I'm like, this is it. Like, I didn't know, I literally had no idea how I was going to do it or what it entailed, but I knew it's what I knew it was what I wanted. So this was kind of the timing, this like 2016, 2017 timeframe, you're out of Prudential, you're at LPL, you've got a stable base of clients that came with you from Prudential, but the, you know, the, the, the lead generation system of tying to orphan policies isn't there anymore. You like working on complex issues, but not necessarily ultra high net worth folks. And then an autism diagnosis comes and it's like, well, folks with neurodiversity issues have a lot of complexity and are not necessarily really high net worth. Maybe this can be my thing. And additionally too, I wanted to work with people who were like me, right? Hence like, or who thought like me, right? Like, you know, my grandfather was an engineer. My father should have been, but was discouraged, right? Like, like those types of the analytical thinkers that a lot of planners hate. Right. So such, you know, a, such a pain. Oh, engineers. I, I love them. But you have um, you also have some material that I've seen on like the different type of niches a financial advisor mm-hmm. would have. I, I think I literally check all of the boxes in one. Right. I yep. think I've looked at it with like, wait, which one is mine? It seems like all of them. But no, it took a little while. I, I had the rough idea, but I, I didn't know where to start. So so where where ultimately did you start? Like where? How did you begin down this path of, I, I think I want to wait, make working with neurodivergent clients my my focus, my specialization? You know, at first, you know, I actually had the CHSNC um, already, uh, Triad Special Needs Consultant, which doesn't prepare you at all for working with this population. And I uh, no problem saying that. You know, at first it was most of this area seemed to be really parents and working with children, right? Okay. And... Yep. I, I struggled a lot in school, but I was never in special education. I didn't have a child in special education. I, I wanted to work with adults, you know, and even if those are parents, you know, in their 70s, 80s with adults, like adult children, right? Even if they have a, you know, you know, a what would be a higher support need, you know, more support needs. You know, commonly people say low, high functioning. I mean, how much support does somebody need, right? Just for people who, who don't know and might know those terms. So I. At first, it was, I didn't know. I had a, I had a lot of imposter syndrome. I, I didn't know a lot about myself. I didn't know if my niche would work. I was extremely afraid about scaring off my existing clients, right? there, mm. There's a stigma that's associated with, you know, mental illness, you know, autism, preconceived, you know, notions. There, there, was, there was a lot of nervousness of you know, how do I not scare them off, right? Because if I did and I'm wrong, like, 
what what next? Okay. So this whole idea of well, and I know a lot of advisors like worry about picking a particular niche or specialization to pursue. What if I pursue the specialization and my clients like, oh well, if you're going after you know if that's going to be your specialization now, I don't know that I still want to work with you. It's a whole other level when you're you know that's just one thing when like I don't know you you have a bunch of retired clients and you say I just want to work with widows and divorcees and clients say, well, like, I'm not a widow. Can I still work with you? I guess it's at a whole other level of concern if you say, well, I've, I, I'm i an advisor with autism and I want to work with adults with autism. And what are my existing clients going to think if I come out to them about my autism? It scared the you know crap out of me. And I mean, I may maybe met a few advisors, you know, who've, you know, come to me a lot more with ADHD, right? I actually think it's, you know, if you go 20% of the population is neurodiverse, which would include ADHD. I actually think the financial advisor, probably even a little higher percentage. But, you know, a few come to me autism, a lot of them, you know, weren't able to, I mean, that prospecting's hard. The starting at the insurance company has a high failure rate for anyone. So, you know, 90% or something. But I was really afraid of, it really started with, I think, a bit more traditional. I didn't think, even when I started this, I didn't, I thought I had to start working with special needs. I, I didn't think I'd be able to work with the people I really wanted to when I started, but it was closer. Why not? I didn't know any other people, you know, like me, right? And in the financial planning world, you know, we're really taught and like the lawyer and legal, you know, special needs trust, people are going to need support for the rest of their lives, right? You know, people with disabilities just need government benefits and a trust seems to be, you know, not that there's one out of five people have a disability, right? And so that's one out of five of your clients, one out of five of your friends, right. your ADHD, then, you know, chances are you, you have more friends who are than average. They all seem to, you know, congregate together mm-hmm. like a pack of wolves or something. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't think that there would be, you know, enough. I didn't know if that would work. So what came next? I mean, how, like, how did you at least start down that road? So started with, let's call it the traditional special needs planning, right? Because that's also what there was material on. That's what I didn't have to as much, let's call it, teach myself. Okay. You know, special needs planning, quote unquote. Right. Which essentially means working with parents and families who have special needs children around special needs trusts and Correct. family provisions about how to make sure that special needs children will be taken care of. And by the way, we, we do a lot of that in our director of financial planning, right? She she solely wants to work with those, you know, but in the adult children, but and the okay. parents of the higher support needs. So we, we do still do a lot of that, which is important to me. And I'd like to think we do it a bit again differently. And we mm-hmm. ask a lot more about the person, but, you know, really wanted to focus a lot more on the individuals. I, I think it was a lot more of, Going into a community that was very different, I got on some boards, some government committees, and it was through a lot of, I'll say, advocacy work that I started to just meet a lot of people and really just expanded my my viewpoint, if that makes sense. Uh, how so? Like expanded your viewpoint of like business opportunities you saw or like people you knew that you could network with for business? Neither. I mean, what what autism is, right? Like, because if you think about, and I think a lot of advisors, Mm. you know, the the people with the disabilities, right? You know, maybe they, you know, they're all on government benefits. They can never be clients, right? Like, you know, did I have to help families, right? Or could I work with people who were like me? 
to and almost were were there actually people like me okay and i think just being around even not from a business opportunity but more of a a community of advocacy and I'm on, you know, the Autism Council for Connecticut, right? And just being involved with larger nonprofits. There were a lot more people like me than I thought there were. And so that begins to open your eyes to, oh, oh, wait, maybe I can like actually, I would say just, just is the wrong word, like ju- just find other adults who have autism, who have found ways to be financially successful, you know, God bless, they they too have interests that manage to align to something that is commercially viable. And so, you know, finding folks to work with who have autism or are neurodivergent and have had some level of financial success and want a financial advisor who un- understands that because they live it as well. Exactly. Right. And, and feeling comfortable in myself enough to speak about, you know, myself and what I might do differently, right? Or how we might either communicate or or what to understand or, you know, because everyone's different. So how did this ultimately expand in the in the business? Because I I know at this point, like you think you actually have like, I don't know if it's a separate firm or a separate offering with a separate website that's specifically for working with neurodivergent clients. So like, how did this evolve and expand over time to the point that now you've actually got a a whole separate website for neurodivergent clients? So a lot of it was just completely by accident. And some of it worked out well by accident and some of it didn't. I'll say the best accident ever, especially for a niche and existing, two completely separate websites. So you have like you have a a website for the advisory firm and a website for the niche of neurodivergent clients. Yes, and actually a third for my investment index. So because I need to make life more complicated. But so because it at first it started actually not in a good place. It started out of fear of scaring them away. Okay. So you so so initially like you you made a separate website for neurodivergent clients essentially so like so that you wouldn't have to show existing clients who came to the firm's website that there's this like prominent featuring of neurodivergent clients. It's 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 some other website that they would have no particular reason to go and see and check out. So you could like keep those separate. Yeah. And, and I mean, honestly, I still do. I have some good clients who, why would they Google me at this point? They've known me 10 right. years. I was having a meeting and they were talking about love on the spectrum. I've never told them it's never been relevant to our conversations, right? <laughs> but I also have some where I have and like we, you know, we, we know, right? Mm-hmm. And I enjoy working with them still, right? So it's more, we're not taking anyone new like that, but it was just kind of like, yeah, six years later talking to me about love on the spectrum and, you know, the tea, like, have I seen it? And, you know, that she has no idea. No, I'm totally not familiar with that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm only, you know, interviewing the producer from it next week on my, you know, other autism podcast. Right. (laughs) And, you know, so, but it started out in not a good place. It it, it was fear. It was, you know, I I wanted to be able to share and be very vulnerable and I didn't want to scare everyone away. So I, I created a separate website to essentially hide it. It was the best thing I ever did for the wrong reasons. So what what made it the best thing that you ever did? I mean, it's like, why why was it so good that you stood it up as a separate website that makes it the, the best thing you ever did to have gone down that road? Because I get to focus on what matters to people. I don't need to have any of the generic investment BS that the, every financial advisor website has, like my boring one has, right? Like 
the boring blogs, the boring, you know, Google's stupid with SEO. They want to know what you do, right? right? And being able to be very specific, there's a million financial advisors, but if you write a specific blog post, a specific population, um, it also allowed the content to be really tailored. Something I learned was, you know, newsletters. Our goal is for every client to be a client of both. We call it, you know, 10 path and paths for planning across the spectrum. And the investments are under, quote, 10 path. Our one newsletter was on like risk management and, you know, special needs trusts or like, you know, insurance this month. And then we have our boring generic investment newsletter. Sometimes even the same household, right? Just the the, the content and the marketing and the messaging, you know, there's people who want to work for me who, who don't give a crap about the investment newsletter, right? Right. And being able to talk about like who we serve, what makes us different without that fear of scaring somebody away. I could be all in and really focus and really brand. And so where does the growth come from primarily at this point? Like, is it is it still coming through 10Path and the quote-unquote the generic advisory business side? Or or is it primarily coming from planning across the spectrum or or still like an even split between the oh, two? Oh, there it's I mean, there's basically nobody coming through the the 10Path side, right? It's all it's all planning across spectrum. So that that's all of it. So in practice, like you're you're still running the two websites and you made the niche website mostly out of fear of not exposing it to your current clients. And as it turns out, all the growth's coming from the niche. I mean, we get, you know, I mean, 10,000 hits a month on our current website, which for an advisor, I think is quite a bit. And the growth yeah. has been high. Yeah. The other one is almost nothing. 10,000 hits on the planning across the spectrum site. A month, yeah, easily. That's people like prospects surfing through, or that's because you have like a lot of blog and educational content that's pulling them in? I'd like to argue they're one and the same, but yes, lots of blog Amen. and educational content. Right. Okay. And so how does that turn into business at this point? Like I, at least I I kind of know the traditional air quotes traditional model around special needs planning where you're working with families who have children, you're setting up special needs trusts and 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 supplemental and supplemental needs trusts and you're maybe doing life insurance to fund them, you may be managing dollars if they've already been partially funded. Like what does the business look like for planning across the spectrum though if the whole focus was we want to do more work with adults who are neurodivergent just what do you do what's the offering at this point do you do the same normal financial planning everyone else does you're simply doing it for a unique audience or is there actually like no the financial planning is different and the fee model is different and what we do for our neurodivergent clients is different i mean i'd like to say it's all different i joined you know these local facebook groups of special needs and by the way anyone looking to get into special needs in a niche or any form join the facebook group that's local to your community and see the questions parents ask and mm. people ask and they're not what the textbooks or the you know the investment companies or whoever the lawyers say is important to clients so i really tried to just look and listen and then i started by just presenting good information so a lot of it was you know being asked to speak and being a resource. I think a lot of people who come to us don't even know what questions to ask or where to start. And I wanted my website or my brand to be a place where this is where they could start, where they didn't even know where. 
But just help me understand, what do you do for them in practice? Like, I, you know, I, you know, I'm a successful engineer. I make $300,000 and I'm autistic and I heard about your firm. What do you do, Andrew? So, so if it's somebody like, like that and not a family where there's benefit considerations, because a lot of time, if the parent's autistic, they might have a child with higher support needs as well. Mm. But if it's just that, so a few parts, one of it is just knowing and understanding them the communication is a little bit different. So for example, virtual reviews are good, but at the same time, you know, we'll we'll say like camera off, camera on, like how do you prefer to be communicated with a lot of people's autism, right? Prefer not to have phone calls, prefer not to have Zoom with videos, right? Prefer, you know, laying out the communication in a in a good way. I will say in a lot of ways for an engineer like that, there isn't too much in the planning that's actually different, right? Because they're they're still an engineer, right? It, it's mm-hmm. a bit more about if they don't need that much support, it's just a bit more about how the planning is communicated or okay. you know what's involved. And also it, it also very specifically we created our own, you know, impact investing index for people who care about investing in an inclusive way with neurodiversity. So that that would be probably, you know, a big one with the engineers. And so tell us more about that. What is the, you know, I, I, I think you framed it as an, an impact investing index for neurodiverse clients or for neurodiversity. So what is that? So one of the other, you know, things that I decided I really enjoyed doing was working with companies that wanted to, you know, be more inclusive and hire workers who are autistic, neurodiverse. And there's, at least it seemed like to me, everyone kept talking about it was, you know, SAP, Microsoft, JP Morgan have these programs. And I'm like, man, I know there have to be more. And so we created an index of 79 companies because 79 is gold on the periodic table and gold is AU for autistic of companies that were really inclusive with hiring and making products and you know think of it like you know like a you know like diversity and inclusion right and companies that were either really embraced you know diversity slash neurodiversity so we get a lot of people now where you know people want to invest in what they believe in right a lot of the people like that if somebody's coming to us specifically because I'm a neurodiverse advisor and they really care about neurodiversity and they're an engineer, then the index is usually something that will interest them. And, and right now we, we made the decision to pay to have it tracked daily. It's on a Bloomberg terminal. We buy all the stocks currently. It's a separate account. It's not an ETF yet. So that's, I would say for the quote, lower support need, I think that would be the planning. Is not that different? Really just a lot more about how it's communicated. And I'd really just say how I communicate and how, I don't even know if unspoken language is a thing or just understanding where they are and also being able to explain things in a way that's, you know, helpful for them. So help us understand a little more. Just what does it mean at the end of the day? Say like you you made an 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 index. I mean, like you 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 so you've you've picked a series of seventy nine stocks that you think are representative of you know of of neurodiversity of I think as you said like hiring with a neurodiversity lens or being supportive of neurodiversity in the organization or, or making products that support neurodiversity. So like I, I get like there's a list of seventy nine companies that you've curated. Yeah. What does it mean that you've quote made an index though? I mean, like what what have you what did you do 
So there's providers like S&P. I went with a, a very small niche provider who had a very, and it's called a IPOX. He had a very unique index slash ETF that I used. I had no idea what I was doing. So I'm just like, oh, you have your own index and you turned it into an ETF and it's it's unique. It's strange. So my index is a little different too, right? Okay. What did you do? So I spoke to a couple of, and if I was using their ETFs, well, the portfolio manager was happy to talk to me, right? Uh-huh. Like, you know, because, well, I, I'm using their product. So I talked to like S&P. There's a few, I think uh, Selective is one, and it costs, let's say, ten to 15000 a year because they have to, you know, keep track of, you know, the rebalancing, the constituting, you know, if there's a merger or a split for it all to be, you know, public and transparent. Also, we had to decide, I, I'm sure you've spoken about it, if backtesting uh, we couldn't do, not just because backtesting is a joke to begin with, right? And almost shouldn't be allowed. But <laughs> little little problem with cherry picking, but yeah. Yeah. So we we I we didn't do that because also the formula, there was no there was no math or science to it where I could do that. So, you know, we just kind of had to get it started. And it was like, what's your methodology? Like, how are you going to weight your index? That was very important to me. There's, it's equally weighted. Part of its investment philosophy, part of it is the whole diversity and treating everyone equally. Uh, If I'm being honest, it's a bit more on the investment philosophy side of market cap weighting that, you know, influence that. And methodology, how often are you rebalancing? What is your benchmark? So you set all these rules and parameters of like, here's here's the companies we want to own based on our criterion. Here's how we're going to rebalance the index. Here's how we're going to, you know, adjust it on an ongoing basis whenever, you know, you decide companies will come in and out of your index based on your criterion for what, what constitutes a, a neurodiversity company. And then IPOX's job is to essentially like ru- run a model that actually tracks the performance of this index in real time from the point that it was constituted. So you get to build a track record over time and then eventually you can either invest that in a separate account structure yourself. You can, you know, try to find an ETF provider that will license it and turn it into a a standalone ETF product. You get to decide how to build and scale it from there. Exactly. Yep. And also one thing interesting that seems commonplace is, you know, if if it if you are looking to create an index, and I thought this was interesting, if it is an ETF, I can choose to, you know, share the index revenue with IPOX. Right. And then I'm not paying the ETF fee or like right. the, the index fee. So, you know, that's probably, if anything, more a goal. Not that my end goal is to sell an ETF, but it's on the Bloomberg. I don't even have a Bloomberg okay. terminal. It's motivation to get one, but they're expensive. Right. And it's A U L X X I X because Bloomberg won't let you mix letters and numbers. Right. So we use the Roman <laughs> numeral for. Ah, so oh, LXXIX is seventy nine. Got it. Yeah, it 50, took me a while. To... Fifty ten ten nine. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it also again, like yeah, how do you want it weighted? You know, rebalanced. Our, our. Uh, if you can't tell, we went far with this theme. We have eight criteria. They're all a point scale based upon eight different elements on the periodic table mm-hmm. that all add up to seventy nine with a top score. So. You know, we look at leadership. So Elon Musk would be an example, right, of being yep. autistic. But there's also, you know, Richard Branson or the, the 
founder, you know, Schwab, right? You know, um, beyond having some inclusivity and other, you know, he was dyslexic, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's leadership in a company to the, to the point that we can get it. But it also helped. I was, we were already kind of being in the business of working with a lot of these companies and their programs. So a lot of it was us hearing about these things or, or working with clients who were part of this company's ERG on neurodiversity, right? Like that's how we knew it existed. So what does this add up to in terms of the advisory firm today? Not not just the neurodiversity index, but just, you know, the 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 general advice offering through TenPath, the the specialization offering through planning across the spectrum. So I, I don't know if you size in terms of like number of clients or assets under management or just overall revenue for the firm, but what has this grown to for you at this point? So I mean it's grown to be you know, a, a lot, I guess a little bit accidental, you know, we consider everyone a client of both, again, if we're managing assets and, you know, 10 path, if it's, you know, 100 households, uh, 100 million AUM at this point, but we've also, we get one to two people a day, at least contacting us, reaching out organically through finding us. And the hard part is I wanted to be for where people didn't know where to start or what questions to ask. It's pretty much impossible to pre-qualify that. Mm. <laughs> and so I, I hired a director of, you know, financial planning, another CFP, um, you know, brought on, a, again, a fully licensed paraplanner. A, a lot of it is because... If I said I wanted to fire, I, you know, depending on the day, sometimes I feel this. If I want to fire everyone tomorrow, right? <laughs> me and an admin or so, mm -hmm. you know, I'd have I'd have the ability to have an extremely comfortable lifestyle practice. Revenues grow because you know, hundred clients, hundred million dollars. You can support that with a one or two person team and make a great income. Correct, but I can't support them plus grow. Plus all the advocacy and the other, you know, things that I, I wanted to do. So, but we've really focused on hiring people who are ultra specialized, which when you think about it of, you know, let's call it my special interest is a little bit more broad, but we brought on um, an autistic uh, credit counselor just wants to discuss budgeting in your credit score, right? Okay. And like financial wellness for some of the employers that we're doing. We brought on somebody who's just licensed for insurance because what I found is um, there's Medicare for people who have disabilities under 65. Mm. Nobody was talking about that and they didn't have supplements or things. And I thought, well, you know, if, if there's, if I'm, we're getting a few prospects a day who maybe can't become financial planning clients, I don't want to just turn them away. Maybe there's a way where we can still help them and not just feel like charity, if that makes sense. Yep. Or it can be like a revenue sustaining model to be able to help people where they're not getting help. That, that was the thought behind that. We, we continue to, you know, niche even more specifically. So as my current planner has been able to work more with parents, I've been able to, you know, really work more with the individuals and employers, right? And eventually I'm going to niche so much that there's, you know, I don't know, 10, 10 clients I want, right? But I'm not there yet. So what surprised you the most about building an advisory business? The fact that I did it. <laughs> I think the fact that how much I love building it, honestly. Mm. 
I, I think I really enjoy, you know, these putting these systems in place. And, and I've found that I've also really enjoyed, not that I don't enjoy working with clients. I, I, I do, but, you know, building itself, you know, having the, the procedures in place, getting to make the rules, right? You know, setting up, you know, my every IT guy I, I've had has fired me. So, I, you know, I've been having to <laughs> do doing your own IT. Yeah. So no, no enough to be dangerous. Right. So, but like setting that up, you know, they get like the laptop and it's all open, you know, and it's all done for them. Or like, I I think like building it has been probably the, yeah, I I would say the most surprising is how much I actually enjoy the, the building out of all of it. So what was the low point for you on this journey? So I had a partner and it was three, so it was three years ago, we actually purchased a practice from an advisor. It started before, you know, I, it was when my specialty side was kind of just beginning. It was a lot, I live in the insurance capital of the world. So the, his clientele was a lot of actuaries. So you want to talk about it? Yes, exactly. Like if you could target autism without targeting autism, right? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You know, the fear didn't come through with clients. He he was older and it wasn't hidden, but it wasn't advertised. And I think when he learned, he, he didn't want his clients working with someone like me. And oh. that was uh, a breakup with a former partner after his, you know, acquiring a practice. And, you know, uh, the fallout of that was... Well, so, so you, so you had acquired the practice. He didn't know about your autism. When he found out about your autism, he didn't want his clients going to you even after the deal was done and blew up the deal or blew up the, the, the close and the client transfer. Clients had started to transfer. Right. Uh, but, but I mean, yes, did, didn't want me working with them. Only wanted my former partner working with them. And, wow. you know, you can't blame my former partner because that, well, uh, you know, cause then, you know, then he'd have to have all the clients that I right. couldn't work with, or you try the dangerous game of, well, the advisor, you know, the transition was so new, right? Like right. maybe, you know, I think there was fear on the other side of, you know, him saying elsewhere, there was a lot there, but so that was, I had spent forever building the practice and I think it's so many advisors dreams, right? Like yeah. buying that book. What is like the statistics? And like, I found the good one. He was an yeah. old insurance advisor too. Like I understood the insurance side, but he did a lot of planning and like I said, actuaries, yeah. right? Like, like, okay, the, you know, my partner could take the ones I didn't want. Again, whether they're diagnosed neurodivergent or not, right? They're still, I wanted people who thought like me, right? right. Who like the analytics. But that was, that was really, really hard on just a, a, a million levels. So I, I would say that was definitely uh, the low point. So what, what do you know now you wish you could like go back and tell you from 10 plus years ago when you were starting a financial advisor career? I, I think it's going to sound like buy Apple stock. <laughs> I think. I think that would be it. I, I think, I, I don't know if I would have changed any of it. I think if I had known some of the ways, some of the things were going to work out, you know, it wouldn't of Anything you wish you'd known back then that just might have accelerated the path or made it easier or made it go smoother? I think if I knew I was autistic, I, I'd be a lot kinder to myself, right? Mm. With a lot of things I either struggled with that, like, I don't like bright lights. That's easy to explain. People have had a migraine. I can be in an office with darkness, but... You know, maybe just thinking, 
but forcing myself to be in bright lights because, well, maybe everyone else is just in pain too and they're getting over it. Or, you know, maybe understanding that I don't understand some situations that well and that, you know, therefore, no, that woman I met at the movie theater with my wife was definitely not interested. I, I Maybe I'd still be at Prudential, right? Maybe I wouldn't have gotten as much arguments with management, right? Because yeah. maybe they'd be under more understanding, but then maybe I wouldn't, you know, I would have the flexibility to do what I'm doing now. So I, I think, I think just, yeah, being, being a lot kinder to myself and being able to share a bit more. So... So any advice you would give to neurodivergent folks that are thinking about becoming a financial advisor and maybe concerned because of autism, ADHD, dyslexia, what, what advice would you give for neurodivergent folks thinking about the financial advisor career? So I've made it a double whammy, right? Like I am, but that's also my clientele, right? A lot uh-huh. of people who are, you know, maybe ADHD or neurodiverse, that's not their niche, right? I would say, you know, think about what you like to do and why. And I would say I would, I find a lot more neurodivergent people are, are not cut out for the, let's call it the front facing sales. Mm -hmm. And, and that's okay. And it's so much better. Like, I mean, if, you know, if you can spend the time doing what you're good at, especially when you're like neurodiverse and you love to do, you'll do it 10 times faster than anyone else. If it's something that you're not good at and you don't like to do, you may not even be able to do it. So I think figuring that out and not feeling bad that like certain things are hard for you and it's totally okay to outsource those things. Like I think starting out feel like you have to do everything. Like the best decision I ever made was hiring an assistant before I had enough revenue to do so, who just was able to help me with the things that I was not good at. So this is a a podcast about success. And and one of the themes that always comes up is just the the word success means different things to different people. And so you're on this you know, wonderful path of building successful business and, and crossing 100 million of, of AUM. And so the, the business is going well and successfully. How do you define success for yourself at this point? I, I don't. I, I, I just keep looking at, I it, it's a short-term focus and a long-term one at the same time. I, I think just, am I doing more of what I like to do? And, and I just like, am I helping more people? I mean, I, I that might sound like a little cliche too, but at the same time, yes, it's AUM, but I, you know, as soon as I hit that next number, it's going to be the next number. Like, I'm never going to be satisfied. Like, you know, it's true. Like, I mean, I, I thought I'd be satisfied by now. I I just want to keep doing what I'm doing. I, I don't know if that makes sense. Have a bigger impact. I think, you know, helping with other neurodivergent advisors feel comfortable about coming out. And a lot of positive change just in our perceptions of clients in the industry. So I actually think a lot of my success comes from my non-main business where I can provide, you know, good education for more advisors to be able to help their clients, right? Or to, or the clients I work with to be able to help them in a way or understand them that, you know, nobody else has. You know, even some of our clients, you know, they inherited some money and they were told they needed a special needs trust, right? And, oh, well, nobody bothered to check they weren't on any government benefits that required a trust. <laughs> so, yes, they had an intellectual disability and a lower IQ, but but they didn't need a special needs trust. Like, right. you know, that's that's some of the most satisfying work, right? Or the mm. person who called me too scared to buy food, right? To ask her mm. trustee for food. Because if you have a special needs trust, you don't own anything. You can't right. spend money. You can't do anything, you know? 
And we were able to work with her current trustee and get another lawyer or trustee involved to where like she was in a house that was being like she because there was a fire in her condo, but she couldn't call the insurance company. It's not her condo. Like the trustee wouldn't call. So she's she has no heat, electricity, water, and she's too afraid to ask. Right. Because she feels like she's bothering them. Right. And, and be able to like help her and, and work with her. I mean, that's, that's some of the most satisfying, but also helping other advisors see the same thing, right? And maybe question what they see in front of them. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.